I'm Leslie Manukian, President of Health Freedom Defense Fund and host of Conversations on Health Freedom, a podcast about our most sacred human right. Welcome to the show, Mary Holland. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, Leslie. So great to have you. Um, Everybody, Mary and I have been friends for a very long time, ever since I made uh, my documentary on vaccines, The Greater Good. And the reason I wanted to have her on here is because, you know, we talk about health freedom issues and Mary has a truly, um, she has a very personal journey and a very inspiring one. She was a former professor of law at NYU Law School. She is now the um, president on leave from Children's Health Defense Fund. She is working with Team Kennedy um, on RFK Jr.'s campaign. She is an author of many books. She's also the mother of a son with autism. And I just want to talk about all of the issues that are so important to both of us as people who've actually been directly affected by the nation's vaccine program and who unwittingly um, were impacted or injured by it. So anyway, Mary has an amazing background and I'd say, let's just start with what actually was the first thing that happened to you to make you realize that there might be a problem. Well, thanks so much, Leslie. So, um, you know, I came from a very mainstream medical background. Both my parents were mainstream physicians. They were innovative in their own ways, but I had two uncles who were physicians and both parents who were physicians. So I came from a very, a mentality of orthodox medicine. So I didn't um, really, uh, you know, I was exposed to some friends who were more alternative in their perspectives on health. And I wasn't I wasn't in any way opposed to that or, or, or thought it was, you know, outside of uh, rationality, but it just wasn't sort of, I, it didn't really speak to me. Um, and so when I had a, an infant, I questioned when the pediatrician told me that they, that the standard practice was a, a vaccine on the day of birth. That sounded really radical to me. I was like, I can't get behind that, but I didn't know enough, Leslie, and I didn't question enough to say, oh, well, you know, forget the whole thing. I wish I had, but I didn't. And um, so I basically vaccinated my son according to, largely according to the CDC schedule. And this was at a time when the vaccines still contained thimerosal, the ethyl mercury containing preservative. Um, And so in retrospect, there were a lot of early signs in his first year of life, but at the time I was a first time mother, I didn't really recognize them in the way that I now recognize them very clearly. So he met his basic milestones, although I think there were signs, but he met his basic milestones. But then um, at around two, when he actually delayed, probably fortunately got the MMR, measles, mumps, rubella, He just fell off a cliff um, and he regressed in his development. And if you've never watched a young child regress, it's horrifying, right? Somebody who could talk suddenly can no longer talk. Someone who could climb up two steps at a time, you know, foot over foot can no longer do that. Um, Somebody who could eat can no longer really eat properly. And I, I, I watched somebody being, I watched my own son being poisoned essentially. 
but I didn't fully appreciate it. I knew that something was tremendously wrong, but I didn't know. And so um, I started that journey like so many parents do of, you know, you go to this doctor and you go to that doctor and you try to figure it out. And fortunately, through people, we were getting early assessments between the time he was two and three. Um, I started people pointed me in the direction of vaccines. And then I went to a Defeat Autism Now conference. And that in the early days, this was 2001, um, was really a fantastic uh, convening spot for scientists, physicians, parents, advocates. And I heard Liz Burt speak, um, and I heard Rick Rollins speak, and I heard um, uh, Bernie Rimland speak, and I heard Sid Baker speak. And I suddenly went, oh my God, I just gave my kid all these shots with mercury. Now I know it's much broader than mercury, but at the time I was like, oh my God, my son just got all these shots with mercury. I came home. Fortunately, we'd actually saved the packages of the shots. And, um, you know, he had received huge, these were, these were multi-dose vials. So he had received potentially the bottom oh of the vial. He had received huge amounts of mercury. So immediately I was fortunately able to find a Dan doctor and um, started him on a protocol to detox him. And literally the first day that he was getting um, a uh, antifungal treatment, words started to come in and he was starting to be able to, you know, have several words a day. So it was very clear as we're now, I think as a society understanding much better, this wasn't a neurological issue. It was a motor issue. He could not say the words. Um, but it's been a long journey. Um, he's not fully recovered. He's still on the autism spectrum. He's a healthy young adult for which I'm very grateful and he's happy and he's leading a, a good life, but he was permanently injured. So as a, as a young mother slash lawyer, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> how did this just happen? Like, this is a mandated product. And then you, you know, the first thing you understand is, you know, of course you do, Leslie, is there's no liability. So what's the incentive for these products to be safe? Zero. There's zero incentive for these products to be safe. Zero. And then I started to read and I understood that there'd been this explosion and, um, my first focus, of course, was on um, recovering him. And so the first few years after this understanding, my sole focus was on doing the Dan kinds of protocols, casein, gluten-free diet, um, the uh, um, all kinds of interaction with him to kind of draw him out of the bubble of, um, you know, kind of stimming and things, nutritional supplementation. But once he was clearly on the road to recovery, uh, I realized, oh my God, the only way that I can protect him and protect other people is by getting involved in this issue. So I think the first activist thing I got involved in was actually, interestingly, it was a hearing in New York City um, around the um, mandated H1N1 vaccine. And um, that had been inadequately tested that they were trying to roll out on all healthcare workers. Uh, they were hyping that for everybody. Um, and I remember I went and spoke at that and then kind of one thing led to the next. And 
as a professor at NYU, one of the great benefits to me of that was that I had quite a bit of um, time for research and writing. And so I started studying and I started writing law review articles and then they got to be books. And then people started asking me to come to testify in state legislatures about the law and about why there should be exemption rights. And um, so one thing led to another. And uh, and then in 2019, um, NYU basically started censoring me. Uh, the law school clearly on orders from the head of the university said, you can't do this research anymore. You can't, um, you can't tell people that you work at NYU. You can't use any university resources towards your research. We don't, there was a really a cockamamie excuse of, oh, well, you're not tenured, you're a contract faculty, so we can't really assess the quality of your work, which is absurd. I was published in all these peer-reviewed journals. I mean, it was ridiculous. They just wanted to silence you. <laughs> yeah, they wanted to shut me up, but they didn't want me to quit, Leslie. They really didn't want me to quit. They wanted me to keep teaching, but they just wanted to shut me up. Mm -hmm. And I thought long and hard about it. And I considered various options. And I said, you know what, this is the time from the universe. It's time for me to leave here. And so I showed up at Children's Health Defense in September of 2019, really just in time for the pandemic in 2020. It was perfect timing. And it was really ironic. There was something particularly funny. The first, not the first, but the second conference I went to when I got to Children's Health Defense was in Israel. And many of Dell and Dell Bigtree and Brian Hooker and Kim McRisenberg came with me and a, a number of people from Europe. We all assembled at this amazing conference in Tel Aviv, a thousand people. But what was so fascinating is that morning that I was supposed to fly, I got this urgent email saying the conference is called off. You don't go and, and it's terrible. You know, somebody called in some scare and, and it's all off. And I was like, this is, and it, it was not from a name that I recognized. It was very suspicious. And so I called the organizers that I did know. And of course the conference was going on. This was an attempt to keep me in the States and not to travel. And uh, so they actually opened a criminal file. I don't think that ever went anywhere, but anyway. So, and then I was at Children's Health Defense until April 1st and uh, now I'm on leave and uh, working for a campaign to see if we can't really move this whole conversation into the really, really mainstream. Yeah. Well, thank you so much um, from me, myself, and from millions of other people around the world who are so, you know, sorry for the tragedy that you suffered in your own family, but so grateful for all the work that you've done, because that's what we can really do, right? That's the alchemy of life. We can either be bowed by it all and literally just to the breaking point and not able to cope, or we can figure out that there's something stronger in us that makes us, that compels us, I think, to go and do something and to speak out. And I think there's so many of us, people like you and myself and others who are, have gone to, you know, some of the top universities in the country have had successful careers and things like this until our lives were kind of derailed by this experience. And um, I know there are so many of them, I won't you know, name names, but there are so many of us who are like that. And they're just, they're bright and they're articulate and they're not going to be cowed by the mainstream. And that's, that's you in particular, you know, it's, 
um, it's just such a testament to you and who you are and your, um, you know, your integrity and the ethical fiber that um, runs through you. And so I just, I thank you for that. Mm-hmm. You know, when you were talking, you, you made some, some points that I really want to unpack. One is, well, let me just ask how, what year was your son born? He was born in 97. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about why that's so important. And in particular, let's tie it into Simpson Wood, <laughs> because that's something that's coming up and why it's so important. You also talked about multi-dose vials. So let me just share that, you know, what happens, there are these multi-dose vials of vaccines where they would just put mercury in them as a um, a, a, a disinfectant in the shot. And then they would stick the needle in and pull out the shot that they would stick into the child's arm and they would shake it up in between. But there was always this settling that happened. And so when you talked about maybe your son got the bottom of the bottle, this is exactly what the issue was. But let's talk about what happened in 1999, 2000 and the early 2000s and how things changed so dramatically and the cover-up that ensued and all of that kind of stuff. We just unpack why it was such a critical time that you did vaccinate your child. And also, did you vaccinate him for hep B at birth or did you not? You did well, not at birth, but at one month. So at the, you know, okay. one month he got the first dose and he, it's a little bit late, but he got all the doses of hep B. Um, yeah. But after that MMR, that was it. It was clear, like, this is yeah. bad news. And so, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so I think let's take a step even back further than that, Leslie. Um, so, a critical Rubicon was the 1986 National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, which basically gave industry and the healthcare provi- uh, healthcare providers blanket liability protection in in the real world. So that's when, as Bobby Kennedy likes to say, that the, the gold rush started for vaccines. So we went from having measles, mumps, rubella diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, and polio. And that had been the case since the 1940s, even the 1930s. We then exploded the vaccine schedule because all of the incentives for industry were to add more and more and more because there's no downside, there's no liability, and there's no marketing expense. You get it forced, you pay off a few legislators, and then it goes on the schedule. So there was an explosion of the schedule. By the time the late 90s, we were still, we were already looking at I don't know, 50 essentially recommended or mandated shots for kids across the country. So the generation of parents slightly before me, um, and I credit particularly David Kirby's book, David Died Recently, which is a tragedy, um, but he wrote the book Evidence of Harm, which is specifically about thimerosal-containing vaccines, and he focused on three women. And that book was very influential for me. It focused on Liz Burt, who sadly is also no longer with us, but Lynn Redwood and Laura Bono. And Lynn Redwood and Laura Bono both preceded me at Children's Health Defense, first called World Mercury Project, and um, are both dear friends. Um, so they figured out, Leslie, in 99, in 2000, there was this public recognition, and it was even written about in the New York Times that, oh my goodness, we probably shouldn't be giving babies all this mercury. This is not in keeping with the Environmental Protection Agency standard for exposure to mercury. Uh, maybe it's a bad idea. And it was President Clinton at the time who said, all right, by executive order, we'll take it out by 2003 and we'll keep it in the vaccines for all the rest of the children around the world. So slowly but surely, thimerosal was taken out of over-the-counter products and out of childhood vaccines, although it was kept in um, the seasonal flu shots. And um, the generation of 
children who developed autism in that period of time, the late 90s, the early 2000s, or the 90s, the early 2000s. And this is the a little bit earlier is when hepatitis B shot got put on the schedule starting at the day of birth, right? So there were several doses that had mercury in it. Um, we saw a really profound kind of autism, uh, different than the way autism, generally speaking, looks today. There were children who just had very poor physical characteristics, very pale, very low muscle tone, but also unable to speak, mm -hmm. uh, which is obviously just a profound um, disability as a human not to be able to convey your thoughts in the typical way. Um, so as I say, this at that time, thank God, a group of activists, doctor, scientists, parents started coming together. And Defeat Autism Now was meeting a couple times a year in different parts of the country. And that was huge for me. That was really, really huge because I learned about these biomedical protocols. I started to learn about alternative views, although actually it's mostly Orthodox doctors. It was Andrew Wakefield was a huge draw at that time. And Bernie Rimland, who was a PhD psychologist, but Dr. Sid Baker. But these were open-minded Orthodox physicians, and they knew that something was terribly wrong, and they were starting to focus on vaccines. Yeah, it reminds me also of Bob Mendelson. Did you ever read that book? That was one of the first things I read, How to Raise a Healthy Child in Spite of Your Doctor. Exactly. I read that book, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is just mind altering and world altering. You know, that combined with vaccines, are they really safe and effective? I think I read that in 2001. Yeah. Uh, those are the things that ripped the veil for me, but, you know, I'd been on wall street. I was a business person. And so when I discovered, when I read that they didn't have any liability for their products, I just thought, you know, what industry in the world benefits from this? And of course, why would they make safe products if they're, if they have no liability for them? And I mean, that was just red flags all over the place. And I thought this can't be right. This just can't be right. <laughs> And I started digging deeper, but so let's talk about, so when did Simpson Wood happen yeah. and what was the impact of that? And then let's tie it in as well to what's going on because yeah. there's going to be a big event. Right. Thank um, you. Brian, about June the, yeah. Yes, absolutely. June 8th in Atlanta, there's going to be a commemoration that it is now 23 years after a conference that was convened by officials at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and by leaders in the pharmaceutical industry and by physicians in those bodies. So it was about 60 or so people that convened in a conference center outside of Atlanta in the woods. And we only know about this conference, Leslie, because Liz Burt, um, working for a group called Safe Minds, uh, put in a Freedom of Information Act request. And somebody, thankfully, threw into the box of documents the transcript of this meeting that was never intended to be made public. And in fact, at this meeting of primarily physicians and scientists, they said things like, we have to keep this data about the effects of thimerosal out of the hands of lawyers. It was really that explicit. Um, and what they were looking at were some- Can I just say something, Mary? I have to interrupt too. Didn't yeah. they actually also say, we can't make it go away? And it what they meant by time. that was that they couldn't make the, uh, the connection right. between the thimerosal and the carnage it was causing, in particular neurological, in these children go away, right? 
So, so the meeting convened really to look at the early data that had been done by a scientist then at the CDC, Dr. Verstraten. And Dr. Verstraten, it's called the Zero, Generation Zero Study, and it's in David Kirby's book, Evidence of Harm. So it showed an 11-fold increase in autism for children who got the hep B on the day of birth versus those that did not. It also showed an extraordinarily elevated risk of ticks of apraxia, of dyspraxia. I think it's ADHD. I'd have to look at the graph, but it was, the evidence was quite clear. And in fact, you're exactly right. Some of the people said, we just can't make the signal go away. Um, but what actually happens after Simpson with Leslie is not only does Verstraten massage the data, he gets it published so that the signal has all but disappeared. Verstraten then leaves the United States and goes and starts working for GlaxoSmithKline in Europe. So he's out of subpoena ability. And then the CDC itself through, um, um, what's his name? The master manipulator. Our friend wrote the book, Master Manipulator, Thorson. Paul Thorson, a Danish scientist who had access to the Danish registry, Paul Thorson is a contractor to the CDC, and he basically, with Danish data, manipulates studies to uh, undergird the fraud that thimerosal does not cause autism. And it, during this time period, first, the Institute of Medicine meets and says there might be a causal link between thimerosal and autism. And then they scurry to redo that study. And then they say, not only is there no link, but no further research should happen on this topic, which is a dead <laughs> giveaway, right? What scientist ever says, never research this <laughs> The book is closed, right? It's like, closed. I am the science. <laughs> I am the science, exactly. I am the, just we, the science. So- <laughs> Uh, there's been a there's been a there's been a tragic uh, criminal cover cover up um, of the data, Leslie, um, for since 2000. And credit goes for me personally to Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who wrote an article that he published in 2005 based on the Simpsonwood transcript in the Rolling Stone. Yeah. And that transcript, that article called "Deadly Immunity," really examined this cover-up and that this was clearly a conspiracy to cover up data that was unambiguous, that thimerosal, a mercury-containing preservative, duh, can pass through the blood-brain barrier of an infant whose immune system is not developed and cause neurological harm. I mean, that's about the most logical thing in the world, right? Um, but they were attempting to cover this up. And Rolling Stone has since, in Salon, they co-published it. They have both since retracted that article. Back in the day, Leslie, um, David Kirby got on some mainstream media shows to yeah. talk about evidence of harm. Uh, I actually, there were times when we could really talk about this in a normal mainstream forum. Uh, but those days are gone. And this topic has become increasingly censored. And the, the coercion has only grown since then to take away religious exemption rights, to add more shots to the schedule, like pneumococcal shots and chicken pox shots and human papillomavirus shots and meningococcal shots. All of these have been added since my son was an infant. And the, the the only good news, Leslie, is I think millions and perhaps even billions of people are now waking up from these completely outrageous experimental COVID shots. Yeah, it's um, I I um, fully believe that this whole COVID 
<laughs> circus, because I truly believe it's a circus, is the biggest own goal ever scored by an industry, <laughs> right? An own goal is a soccer analogy. Basically, when your own team scores on itself by mistake, you kick it back to the goalie and the ball goes in the in the goal. And so it's basically, you know, they've, they've shot themselves in the foot with this. There was that recent study that just came out of, or I think it was a, um, a poll out of Canada showing that 39% of parents now, only 39% of parents will unquestioningly, unquestioningly give vaccines to their children. So we're down to less than 40% of parents in Canada who have zero questions about vaccines. I mean, we've been working at this for 20 years and we haven't been able to achieve that. I mean, I don't think we can declare victory yet. No, I'm not saying that game over because uh, they're certainly not going to stop. We have to, in my view, and I believe in yours, we are working against some people, not lower level people, but at the top of this, we are really looking at people who have criminal intent and they're not going to stop because when the game is finally over, I do believe and I, I truly do believe that there will be punishment at some point for some of these bad actors. Of course, not all of them. Many of them will get away with it. But but for some of them, at the end of the game, when the music stops in this musical chairs game, there will be some who will receive very severe condemnation by society and punishment. And so these people who do have criminal intent are not going to stop. They're really not going to stop. And so well, they have no right. They have at this point. They've got media collusion, government collusion. They think they're untouchable. There is no reason for them to stop. They're not going to stop until there is some serious accountability. As Bobby often says, um, you know, these are serial felons. And I mean, I think that we can categorize them as true evil because I can't, that was one of the things that, that bothered me so much when I first started reading about this more than 20 years ago. If this is true, it means they're knowingly injuring and killing our most innocent, our most vulnerable, our, ch- our babies and our children. And that's the truth. And that is so hard for most of us to even comprehend because decent people would never do these kinds of things. And so I think this is one of the biggest challenges about opening people's hearts and minds. But the last three years has successfully done that because they lied so comprehensively to the public that millions of people, if not billions, have woken up to this very sad um, and depressing fact. I think that's right. And I think that the the damage um, of the whole COVID uh, fraud is still unfolding. I was just reading this morning about young children who are presumably children who were vaccinated with the COVID shots and they have some minor ache and pain. They're diagnosed with leukemia and they're dead. Um, That didn't happen before. It really didn't happen before that you would have a child with no symptoms and a nine-year-old dies or a 12-year-old dies. It just didn't happen. And uh, it's now happening. And I actually believe there's an attempt to normalize children having heart attacks and children dying suddenly. And that's appalling. Um, I do think people are waking up to just how evil this is. But I also think you're right. It's hard for people to get their minds around the idea that a civilized society can engage in such um atrocities. And yet (laughs) the example of Germany, the most advanced country by many Western metrics um, in the 1930s did exactly this. So it's not unfamiliar. 
but it is hard for people to acknowledge because it is, it, it, it does turn your world upside down. Yeah. It's, I sobbed. <laughs> I mean, the early years of me discovering this were very, very hard because there's only one conclusion that you can come to naturally once you realize that the people entrusted with the safety and well being of your children don't have their best interests at heart. And that is to conclude that we are truly on our own, that we are responsible for each and every choice we make because those people are not looking out for our best interests. And that's a scary place for most people to be, but it's an important place and an important, an important place to arrive at. I believe. I agree with you. I remember back when you're saying that Leslie, um, this is many years ago, I guess it was 2011 was the um, oral arguments at the Supreme court in Brucewitz versus Wyeth. And I stood on the steps of the Supreme Court together with Rolf Hazelhurst and Emily Tarsell, and Emily had lost her daughter to taking HPV vaccines. And we came up with this phrase, yo-yo, you're on your own. You know, you are on your own. And it is important to recognize that, especially when it comes to injecting anything in your body. I mean, it's also true with the air and the food and everything else, but anything that you inject in your body can cause profound, profound changes. And so I'm lucky that I'm around to tell the tale. I'm lucky that my son survived. I mean, not all of our colleagues have been so lucky, Leslie. No. We know people who've died from vaccines. We know people whose children have died from vaccines. Yeah, very much. You know, listen, one of the, you'll remember from the greater good from my movie about vaccines that my dear friend, um, she became a dear friend. I didn't know her at the time, but um, Dr. Stephanie Christner, who's one of the um, family stories in it, she was a psychiatrist, a medical doctor, and her baby died after on Valentine's Day after some shots just died outright. And I mean, I just, I can't think of a more horrific experience as a parent than to lose a child. But I want to clarify something very quickly for our viewers. And then I want to ask you about specifically about health freedom. The article that um, um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. wrote called Deadly Immunity, it was retracted by Rolling Stone and Salon, but they cited the most ridiculous, absurd, silly justifications for doing so. It was like some really minor um, errors in the writing. It was nothing material. It was nothing about Simpson Wood. It was nothing about the dangers of thimerosal. It was like some really tiny things, if I remember correctly, because I read that too as soon as it came out. Isn't that your understanding? I just want people to understand yeah, it. it wasn't retracted because he'd misstated or any kind of negligence no, or anything wrong. It was because it was a hit job. They yeah, wanted to take him down. Yeah, this was censorship and this was to taint him. And this was really, he was, he, that was a major contribution to understanding by the general public yeah. about what vaccines were doing. And so he is a prominent, even then he was a prominent public figure. And so to take him down was a sign. It was a symbol, right? Yeah. It, it, we can take down Bobby Kennedy. We can certainly take down you, right? It was, exactly. it was meant to be um, a clearing of the field. This is not a topic that we're not, we're not going to discuss this topic in polite society anymore. It's done. Vaccines don't cause autism, you know, get over it. right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and of course it told all the other media outlets. Yes, don't, it was very don't, you, much, don't stray here. Don't, don't, yeah. We we now we've decided on the narrative. Vaccines don't cause autism. Anybody that says they do is crazy. Anybody who says they do should not be featured anywhere in the mainstream. 
Yeah. I just wanted to make sure that everybody knew that it wasn't because of anything factual or any major issues, Uh, you know, because they, they might not know. So, no. So let's talk about your own journey in terms of your appreciation for health freedom. What did you think about a notion of health freedom back before your son was injured? And how has that evolved over time? Because I think many of us never contemplated it or we kind of thought, oh, well, I mean, like Dr. Christner, she says in the movie, oh yeah, you know, I need to do this. It's, it's, it's for the greater good. And I just wonder, like, what were you thinking back then, and how have you changed or adjusted your um, your beliefs and thinking about it during your journey in the whole um, in the whole vaccine arena? Sure. Well, I certainly believed in bodily autonomy before this happened to my son. I had a, a, a strong appreciation for that, and interestingly, I was never subjected to mandates. I, I, I didn't, I wasn't somebody who went and, you know, went to my doctor all the time. I never took a flu shot. I I wasn't somebody who was obsessed with germs and I had never really confronted a mandate. And I think that many aspects of law, one of the things I, I understood coming to this as a lawyer is many things happen, not because the law forces you to do it or coerces you or mandates that you do it, but it's sort of in the shadow of the law. And what I realized in my vaccinating my son as an infant, I trusted that the medical establishment would not, like you're saying, I I, I trusted that they would not be advising me to do something that could potentially severely harm or kill my kid. I, I just had that level of trust in the medical establishment. Again, I, I had two parents who were mainstream physicians. It, it didn't occur to me at the time that the medical establishment and the government would be engaged in what is de facto child sacrifice. I, it, it didn't occur to me. So I advocated for, I, I, I did advocate in different, in different manners for bodily autonomy. But certainly my experience then and then later experiences with the medical industrial complex have only confirmed for me that um, sadly, it is largely in this country about profit. My own journey has taken me to all kinds of quote unquote alternative health practitioners who I find are far more centered and focused on the individual patient and what is what is actually happening for that individual without respect to what is the standard of care or some uniform methodology for everybody. Um, And I do feel like there can be no medical mandates. It is reprehensible and it violates medical ethics. It, It so clearly violates first do no harm because first do no harm means the physician or healthcare practitioner has an obligation to that individual patient. And the, 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 the travesty of mandates is it completely flips that. And the doctor's responsibility and the individual's responsibility then is to the government to comply with a mandate as if that would be good for everyone. And in fact, the 1986 law made it very clear, we will kill some people with these mandates. We will injure some people with these mandates and it's for the greater good. Well, I'm I'm not a fan of that. I, I do believe in certain things for the greater good. I do believe in clean water. I do believe in preserving the environment. There are some things where I'm completely behind the greater good as a concept. But 
anything related to my individual body and my individual healthcare, no, there, there can be no mandates, whether for vaccines or any other medical procedure. But even those things that you say are the greater good, water and the environment, ultimately, if they're soiled, right, defiled, then they impact us individually. And so it really comes back to the same thing, which is that no one should have the right to pollute my body, be it through the water, the air, or a needle injected into me. And right. no one should have the right to dictate what I do or don't put into my body. You know? Um, yes. I, it's Right. But I, and I think that these issues about pollution of the food supply, pollution of the air, pollution of the water, electromagnetic radiation, all of these things do have similarities because they are potentially harmful to me. Sure. And they also obviate my ability to say yes or no. Once it's put into the water or the air, I don't have that ability in outside um, to be able to say no. And that is something that we believe in codified in laws for over a hundred years that I should have the ability when it comes to my own body to give consent or to decline consent. So Mary, you've talked about your parents. How did they react when you started to connect the dots and point the finger at the shots? Um, well, my mother is sort of, she, they're both past, but my mother was the peacemaker in my family. And so she just supported me and she didn't really get into the heart of the issues. My father is, was a very, um, got into it. And uh, at first it was very hard, Leslie, and it was very alienating because he couldn't really believe that this could all be true. And it wasn't until I gave him a book written by an MD that was recommended by another physician that I knew who knew my father, that he started to open his eyes. And then he did start to open his eyes. And then he really became an extraordinary advocate. And um, one of the important articles that I co-authored with several colleagues um, was looking at the early records of cases that had been compensated in the vaccine injury compensation program. And it was an article called Unanswered Questions about the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. And we came up with 83 cases of vaccine-induced autism. The people also had other diagnoses of encephalopathy or seizure disorder, but we had them we interviewed those people on the phone. We had many of them take a self-diagnostic test. And it was absolutely <laughs> incontrovertible that these people had developed autism conjoined with this encephalopathy or seizure disorder. So at that point, he became absolutely convinced that um, this was real and that the government was covering it up. And my parents became very supportive, for which I was tremendously grateful. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's very hard for us. Um, professionals to think that our peers could be involved with doing something like this that injures and and kills our children and ourselves. You know, it's it's really heartbreaking. Um, let me just clarify that last little piece because I think it's such an important thing for people to understand. The vaccine compensation program basically does not compensate children with autism, but the cases that you found were where the primary diagnosis was brain damage or brain inflammation. And also it manifested with autism. The point is that the people didn't go to the court claiming autism, but these other issues and autism was just one factor. And so they got compensation. 
and explain why that's so important because it's really critical. I, basically, this vaccine court is just, it's word salad, right? They are playing, it is semantics. And the same thing with Julie Gerberding going on CNN years ago. Well, you know, she had a pre, I mean, Anna, the Hannah Poling case where um, the vaccine triggered a pre-existing mitochondrial disorder. I mean, this is basically a sham that our public officials are playing with us. And I think it's important to, to unpack that. Yeah, let me unpack that a little bit. So this 1986 act that we mentioned, it created this injury compensation program. So people could not sue the vaccine manufacturer. They could not sue the healthcare practitioner, but for fraud. Other than fraud, you could not sue for anything. You had to go to this injury compensation program. And the interesting thing is, Leslie, when that program got started in 1989, they didn't have that many cases. They had added hepatitis B to the schedule, but the schedule had not yet exploded as happened in the 90s. And so they weren't afraid to use terms like autism or autistic behaviors. And so we found these case reports where they said the word autism. Now they were compensating them for seizure. They called it residual seizure disorder and for encephalopathy, but they mentioned autism explicitly. And in fact, the, the press officer for the injury compensation program said, we do have these cases, but we don't track autism. But then in the late 1990s, families started coming to the injury compensation program. In fact, over 5,000 families saying my child's autism resulted from vaccine injury. And those cases went through something called the omnibus autism proceeding that also was absolutely a sham cover-up. And in those uh, proceedings, they definitively decided that vaccines do not cause autism. But the real evidence of the early compensation decisions in the program make it crystal clear that in fact, vaccines do cause brain damage, which manifests in the behaviors of autism. There's no question about that. So unfortunately, this is a long running cover up and I'm very excited. I am planning to go to Simpsonwood for the commemoration, because this is absolutely unacceptable that the mainstream continues to cover up the clear connection between vaccines causing brain damage in young children. Young infants and children do not have a developed immune system. And so this is extraordinary assault to the immune system to be injecting these antigens with all kinds of other um, uh, all kinds of other liquids and substances, and um, many children can't tolerate it. And I think many of the things we see in young people today, anxiety, um, depression, uh, ADHD, ADD, and all kinds of other neurological issues, many of them potentially are related to vaccine injury early in life. Yeah, you know, there was a, um, I know a woman here locally where I live, who had not vaccinated her children. And when the oldest child was, I don't know, probably 13 or 14, she wanted to go on some kind of a um, summer internship where she went to some program and they were, they wanted her to be vaccinated. And so they vaccinated her. And I remember going to um, like parents association meetings at school once that was held by the um, um, head of school. And she sat there talking. She's like, you know, what do we do about all the anxiety our kids are having these days? And that child had never had anxiety before. 
I knew them. We were friends with them since they were young, but this is what happened. And I know another family who um, the daughter developed like severe debilitating anxiety. She would drive to school, get into the parking lot and be unable to get out and go into class. And this, I believe was after she got the Gardasil vaccine. I'm, you know, um, I should probably say just the HPV vaccine, but this was after she got the HPV vaccine. And I don't know for sure if it was Gardasil or the other one, but the point is there's a tremendous amount of aluminum in those shots and aluminum is a known neurotoxin, but also these metals are linked to anxiety. You know, um, it's just, it's, it's so sad, but you know, people are waking up. So we're getting to the end of our time. I like to end on a high note if we possibly can. Would you just give people your take on where we stand? Because it can look pretty dark and pretty bleak, but we've had a lot of successes and we've shifted things a tremendous amount. I view actually COVID as a a success for us in the vaccine safety awareness movement because we have brought over billions of people who were, you know, hitherto completely ignorant to the issue or just dismissed us. And I think that that's a major shift. And we've had actually some really successful lawsuits as well. And many of those are still proceeding, but I feel like there's a lot to be celebrating. Yes, there's a lot to be concerned about, but I don't think we can only focus on all the bad stuff. There's a lot of good stuff happening. So what's your perspective? Well, I I agree with you, Leslie. I do want to sort of say that I do feel um, that, that there's also mourning in order for all the people who really have suffered during COVID from the fear, from the disease and from the vaccines and those that are continuing to suffer. But I absolutely agree that the COVID period was a watershed and that many people, maybe even a majority of people are now very skeptical about vaccines. They're not going to go out and get a booster that's never been tested on humans before. They're not going to unquestionably take except that the childhood schedule is safe. I'm seeing physicians come around. One of the books that I worked on most recently, actually that came out of that 2019 conference in Italy is called Turtles All the Way Down. And I edited that with Zoe O'Toole. The authors are actually anonymous, but that book absolutely is a definitive takedown of the notion that there's any safety in the childhood vaccine program. So I think people are just rejecting it. Um, I think there are many legal victories moving us against mandates, moving us towards full choice, moving us towards the reinstatement of religious rights to abstain from these kinds of health interventions. I actually think that um, this is now moving into the political discourse. This is fantastic. These questions are now starting to be addressed, uh, whether the mainstream likes it or not. The fact that, um, at least in theory, uh, Dr. Fauci is no longer at NIH, the fact that Dr. Walensky is no longer at CDC, that there will be a new government no matter what, in a matter of a couple of years. I think all of these things give me hope and that several candidates are talking about the um, complete nightmare of the COVID interventions for the general society. I I think that's extraordinary. Um, So I, I see a tremendous amount that's hopeful. There are definitely some dark clouds on the horizon. The what's happening at the World Health Organization is very concerning. I do think that 
people need to look at your website. I do encourage people to go to the Children's Health Defense website, sign up for the free Defender article to keep you abreast so that you can intervene. I'm going to go speak next week in Albany. Um, it's to send a message to the legislators that uh, a quarantine law is unacceptable, that mandates are unacceptable, that people need the right to choose for their own bodies. And it's really, it's only when we do accept that we are on our own and then we really stand up for our own rights that we can expect that we will see change. But we've seen it, it's overall, Leslie, I would have to say that the situation is worse than it was 25 years ago. I would have to acknowledge that. But I also do feel like the resistance movement is vastly stronger than it was 25 years ago. And the truth is going to win out in the end. And the truth is on our side. People have to be able to make these decisions. And we know that what we're doing is harming children. We've got to stop. The truth is going to win out. People don't want to harm their own children. They don't. And once they fully understand that that's what they're doing, they will stop. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, COVID broke the public's trust with the public health authorities. And I don't know if it can ever be repaired. But one thing's for sure, parents are going to ask questions that they never asked before because they do care about their children. The truth is on our side. Mary, thank you so very, very much for being with me today. It's been an honor and a pleasure to um, share, share with you this time and also to hear your story and share your story with our audience. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to Conversations on Health Freedom. Please follow us at healthfreedomdefense.org, where you can become a member, subscribe to our newsletter, donate to our cause, and follow us on social media. Music